I mean, like the stuff they wanted me to do. It's like I was in the house, you know. I was at Kurt's house with his mom and his sister, and with Courtney and like you know, and whatever other friends, and and then some. You know, there were some record company people there, obviously, and um, that was the saddest part, actually, for me. But but you know, and then the, the reporters were on the other, you know, outside of the house, like being kept away by barriers, and there was also you know a lot of fans out there that wanted to mourn. And I was like, I, I didn't want to be on the other side of the fence. I wanted to be on this side of the fence, but in order to be on this side of the fence, I, I was, I could not write about it. Welcome to deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with screenwriter James Greer, who over the course of his career has worked as a rock journalist, a novelist, and a musician. His latest project is co-writing the movie Unsane, which debuts in theaters this week and was directed by Steven Soderbergh of Magic Mike and Ocean's Eleven and Aaron Brockovich fame. I actually know James through his writing for Spin Magazine in the early 1990s, back in the print era when rock journalists had a huge influence on popular culture. And I recently discovered while writing an article for The Atlantic that mainstream use of the term Generation X as a signifier for a certain group of people can pretty much be traced back to an article he wrote for Spin Magazine in December of 1991. We talk about that a bit in the interview. Our conversation also reveals how James Greer was pretty much the most interesting person you never heard of in the 1990s. He actually dated Kim Deal of the Pixies in the mid-90s and was with Kurt Cobain's friends and family the weekend the singer was found dead in Seattle. Later in the decade, James played bass for the seminal Ohio indie band Guided by Voices before moving on to Hollywood to write movies for Disney, actually, uh, and then moving on to partner with Steven Soderbergh in developing a number of unusual film and theater projects. More on all of this can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate, but for now, here's James Greer. I don't use Skype that much. I mean, I have a, I, I use it uh, pretty much uh, with my writing partner a lot uh, for for um, screenplays for movies. But um, at but because he's he's based in LA, and also we just can't stand to be in the same room anymore because we've been doing this for like ten years. So, um, <laughs> well, that's another thing that I want to talk about. Uh, <clears throat> j- just because you sort of have a, a multidisciplinary career, but where I want to start actually is sort of how I discovered you or at least discovered the familiarity of your byline, which I was writing an article about girls for the Atlantic about five years ago. And I realized how influential a certain December 1991 issue of Spin Magazine was on my way of thinking during that time. And I realized that um, like the, the reason I so slavishly read Generation X and watched Slacker and did other sort of zeitgeisty participatory things at that time in my life was that you had written an article for Spin, um, basically connecting the dots between Lollapalooza and Slacker and um, uh, Generation X, Douglas Copeland's Generation X. And and so I'm, I'm really curious to know, in a way, that that's a bygone era in the history of media. You know, no longer do we have media outlets that have the influence of spin that, that spin did back then. Uh, so eventually I want to talk to, about your, your current projects, but I want to start back in this era of, of media when 
like a young college student by me could be really, really deeply influenced by a handful of articles written by a spin staffer like you. So you were starting to tell the story, but why don't you why don't you share a little bit about how you got started with spin and then what it was like to work there in the early 1990s? Oh, gosh. Um, sure. Uh, well, like I said, um, I, uh, I dropped out of school and I moved to New York. I was in, I was playing in a band at the time, but it was not, I don't want to mention it cause it was a terrible band. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, that was kind of the, the reason it was like, Oh, let's move to New York. Cause that's what bands do, you know? Um, and I was at a party that a mutual friend who was a musician was throwing for, I don't know what, what, what she was throwing it for, but Bob Guccione Jr. was there and we met and we got talking and I just, you know, basically talked my way into a job as a, um, as an editor there. I pretended that I had editing experience <laughs> and writing experience. Really. I mean, I mean, I'd always wanted to be a writer. I mean, I've, I've been writing since as long as I can remember. I think in fifth grade, I told my, my teacher, I, <clears throat> I have a very clear memory of this, that I wanted to be either a creative writer or a linguist. I don't think I knew what either of those things were <laughs> at that time, but I, I, I clearly had decided cause that's the only thing I remember about fifth grade. So, um, I decided early on that that's what I wanted to do was to be a writer. And then obviously, as you do, you find out that there is there is no money <laughs> in being a writer. Um, there was some money, it seemed to me, in writing about music. And I loved music and I you know, always loved music and I was a musician. So it seemed like if I could get this gig and the magazine hadn't been around very long at the time. I don't know. I remember just after starting they had their fifth anniversary party or something like that. Fifth or sixth. I don't remember. What, and it, what year was this? What year did you start at spin? So like 90, you know, somewhere in, somewhere in, uh, you know, early 1990. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it was still, it was still, like I said, it was a very small, there was, first of all, this was pre, Nirvana. So everything I'm talking about is pre Nirvana. There's, there's two versions of spin. There's pre Nirvana and there's post Nirvana and pre Nirvana spin was a shoestring operation. I mean, we had an office, but there was like, you know, um, I, th I think, um, there was, I mean, there were very few people there that were still doing cut and paste layout layout. You know, they didn't have, they didn't have computers. I don't even know if the, the, technology existed at that point they made the switch over and like the i whenever everybody made the switch over but but even if they had had the money with the art department was like two people um the editorial department was like three people um uh there was no budget for anything so whenever we did a story on a band for example um we relied on you know the record company to pay for the expenses for the travel and all that stuff which you're not supposed to do I'm told, you know, because of, you know, it, that it, in, um, in, in, in an ideal world, you wouldn't take any money from the record company because that in theory could influence your record review about, or your review about the band or what you write about the band. But the, it never occurred to me to do that. And so, and, and to his credit, Bob Guccione didn't really mind if I went on a 
junket to London and hated the band and wrote it about how much I hated the band. And he dealt with mostly with the flack, the fallout from that, right. um, from the upset publicists and things like that. But, um, but yeah, it was like, I mean, we, we, I made almost no money. Um, I had no, you know, what's interesting about working for a magazine in the early nineties that I did was that, and you say now that, you know, it's not possible for, or it's very difficult for someone for a magazine or a, a, a website or whatever to have that kind of cultural influence or widespread cultural influence. But I had no sense that anyone was reading the magazine whatsoever. Um, like back then in the pre-internet era, there was no, you know, you didn't have any feedback. Um, and people think that you used to get a lot of re letters to the editor, but we got so few that, I, you know, I actually wrote some of those myself. I had to make them up. And I know that happened, that happened at Rolling Stone as well, because I talked to some people there. And they said they did that too, on occasion. Um, and, you know, Rolling Stone was obviously way more, you know, popular in terms of, you know, um, subscriptions and readership <clears throat> at that time. Cause I think our readership, um, pre Nirvana was, was somewhere in the range of, um, it varied obviously. Um, but in the range of a hundred to 200,000 mm -hmm. was our, was our readership that, and then like post Nirvana, it all of a sudden went up to 500,000. Um, it, it feels like maybe I remember having a sense that, Spin was the Rolling Stone for my generation. And I couldn't tell you when I got that sense because um, those years in the early 90s kind of blend together for me. But it almost feels like that summer, like 1991 was sort of a hinge year. You had um, Lollapalooza. You had those other things going on, Linklater's uh, Slacker. And then you had Nirvana blowing up. And it felt like spin was sort of swept up in that sudden self self definition of a new generation. Yeah, and I agree, and I think that was a deliberate effort to position ourselves that way. Um, not on my part, but on the part certainly of 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 whoever was running the magazine, which is mostly Bob and the and the music editors at the time. We had a we tended to go through music editors very quickly at that time because they would butt heads with with Bob. Um, but, uh, you know, then, then we finally settled on Craig Marks, who who lasted for quite a while and, and was probably the best editor or one of the best editors, certainly, that we ever had or, and that I ever had. He was, he, was, he was a really good editor. But he he was, I think, responsible for a lot of the focus on just like, yeah, that sort of um, – just basically, he, cut, he was like, like for instance, we had one issue. I can't remember what the issue was or who was in it or anything. But he said, like, he would always be kind of cynical in the sense of, like, you know, have you seen the new Buzzbin issue? Because remember, there were videos that were Buzzbin. That was a big thing on MTV on, back then. On MTV, and was, yeah. Yeah. And that was like, if you, that was how, like, new bands got. Like, if you got a Buzz clip, you know, that was basically then you had a gold record. I mean, it was that influential at the time. So we would we we were as much followers as leaders in a sense. I mean, there was a little bit of both at the time. I mean, the Lollapalooza thing, I think we definitely sussed out at the very beginning. I remember I got sent to cover that like the, almost the very first show. Um, and um, and I, I didn't like any of the bands huh. <laughs> on the bill. But I but I mean, I got this and I and I. 
I knew that what they were trying to do or what Perry was trying to do was to replicate the sort of the, the, the feel of a, of a, of these big British festivals, but have it because it's America, you know, and it's a bigger country, but have it, have it be, you know, tra- a traveling uh, show. And he had the sense that if you put enough, you know, although these bands couldn't do, you know, enough business on their own to justify, you know, playing venues of that size, if you put them all together, somehow it worked and made it a cultural thing. That was a, the other really smart thing he did. It, was, it wasn't just about the music. Like he had a separate tent for like arts and, you know, poetry. He had a poetry slam tent and, you know, the, you know, the Jim Rose circus freaks or whatever they were called. Um, I mean, he had like all these side sort of sideshow things so that it felt more um, rounded than just a, a music festival. Yeah, I I actually went to the one in in basically suburban Kansas City, Kansas, um, when in that summer, uh, and it, it it sort of it had a zeitgeisty feel. You know, I think he was swinging for something that integrated a lot of different cultural elements at once. Um, but I'm I'm curious. You know, you you said that you you didn't have a sense of who was reading you. You didn't have a sense of your influence back then because people didn't write letters to the editor. And I think this is something that, that that's very different from how it is now is that there's so many molecular ways in which young people can speak to the culture. But I'm curious, you, you can disagree with it, but it feels like your article that sort of connected the lines between Slacker, Generation X, and Lollapalooza was part of a series of articles maybe starting with an article in Time magazine in in July of 1990 that's entitled A New Generation, a cover story, that was trying to figure out what kind of label it was going to put on uh, this new generation of young people. And it feels, and, and you know, you probably know this better than me, but it feels like your, your year-end um, assessment of Lollapalooza was very influential in forming the way future publications thought and wrote about the, uh, this generation. Um, in the same way that maybe Everett True, uh, the journalist, sort of created grunge by sort of superimposing a working class flannelness to the to the um, music of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so, what do you make of that? Do you have a do you have a sense that that um, the Newsweeks and the and the Fortune magazines were writing were sort of taking your cues. I um, I didn't at the time. It's possible that I mean I, I like I didn't really read other magazines at the time. I was so busy with Spin because we were juggling so many things. I mean, and because like I said, we had very little staff and we had almost no money to pay freelancers, um, and we were notorious at the time for not paying them on time or pay and paying them very little. I think the going rate was 25 cents a word, which now sounds great, obviously, but, um, at the time was, was, was like a quarter of what Rolling Stone could pay or even a, an eighth. Um, but, um, so, so it's so like, I didn't really have a sense at the time, like what else was being written. I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't, I was also, I mean, it was a rock magazine and, and we were, we were, none of us were really professionals and the atmosphere was not very professional um, to a large degree, it, um, which is just like a sort of a, a euphemistic way of saying I was drunk most of the time. <laughs> um, but um, I mean, you know, because that was the thing. I mean, it was just you, you got 
your free lunches with the publicist, but you would drink and then you would go out and see a show or you'd go to dinner with a band. I mean, that was like the only way you could survive because you weren't getting paid enough was to get all this, you know, these free lunches, these free dinners. And this is back when obviously when the music business had money um, and they just spent it freely. Um, so you, you could potentially every night if you were willing to put up with having to talk to another really not very interesting band every night or go see a show every night. I mean, there were obviously there were shows that you wanted to see, and, but those were rarely the shows that you were getting, you know, uh, that you were supposed to go see. Um, right. so, um, I guess, I guess what I want to say is like, is that I remember that I'll tell you how that article came together. I was, I was supposed to interview Perry for the end of the year article. It was like, he, I can't remember what, what we were promoting or what he was promoting, uh, or why we picked him. I guess we picked him for artist of the year. That was like a group that was probably something Bob did or we did. I don't remember who did it. And then so I'm sitting there and I'm like, I don't just want to do an interview. I have nothing to ask this guy about. I don't like his band. Um, so I don't want to talk about the music. So what am I going to talk to this guy about? And I really honestly just plucked that other stuff out of the air. Like, you know, because obviously I'd read the book um, and yeah. Which, uh, which was excerpted in that issue of spin. There was a general. Yeah, there, was it? Okay. Yeah. There you go. So, so it was like, it was like on my mind just because of stuff like that. I knew that that was there. I knew about the movie because either, so, like, the guy probably, probably the guy who is now my uh, co-writer with movies is he, he was sort of the movie guy there and he was probably talking about it. Um, and it just seemed like, I mean, it just, it just seemed like it would be more interesting to ask him about these other things and to see if that had any sort of resonance with what he was trying to do. And the funny thing was like, he hadn't heard of the book or the movie. Yeah. That, that actually comes <laughs> up in the, in, in the interview. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was hilarious because like, here I am, like, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm for the, you know, for the, you know, one of the first times I'm like trying to like go beyond just a standard Q and a for, 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 a you know, with a, with a musical artist, um, and try to actually bring in some sort of like other cultural strands, um, into the story. And like my interview subject has no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but, 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 you know, he was interested in that. He was like, he wrote them down. I remember, you know, it's probably in the article as well. He's like, well, what is that? No, let me, you know, it's like, I, I want to make a note. Of, I want to read that. I want to see that, you know? <clears throat> um, so, uh, but on, but, but, but from my perspective, it was just me making stuff up, <laughs> right. you know, like I didn't think that there was actually really a movement. I just thought that, that I know this, this is a thing that journalists do. They take, you know, these like, you know, two is a coincidence, three is a trend type of thing. And like sort of try to manufacture a, uh, and, uh, you know, an, an idea out of it at least. Um, and it, it, it did, it, it made sense in my head at the time and whether, I mean, it, later when people started calling everything generation X, I just assumed it was because of the book. Uh, I, I didn't, you know, because the book was fairly popular and at the time, and I just assumed, I didn't really think about my article in that sense. I just assumed that they were, they were, cause they, cause the book was about, you know, it was emblematic of that slacker. I mean, it, it essentially Doug, Douglas 
Kuplan wrote a book that was about that, those people, those same people that were in Slacker and those same people that I assumed were in the Lollap that were the target audience for Lollapalooza and later for, for Nirvana and not just for Nirvana, but just the whole indie rock aesthetic at that time, exemplified by a band like Pavement, for example, just right. about not, not trying and seeming not to try, even though they were worked really hard and Steve Malkmus is a brilliant guitar player um, who's, you know, never gets his due for that. You know, he, he made an effort to not seem to try or seem to care that much. I mean, that was just the vibe that. Was Slanted and Enchanted, was that <clears throat> 1991? If you say so, no, I'm just, I think it was. Yeah, I think, I think, I think you're right. I, the thing about Slanted and Enchanted, it was that it was, a cassette that was uh, being passed around. It was on a cassette. There was a cassette that was being passed around by people who worked at Matador who weren't necessarily, but a friend of mine who worked at Matador who wasn't like Gerard or, or Chris, the two people that were running um, Matador. And it was just like, this is, this record is, is amazing. You know, you listen to it. And I got so excited about that record. And I loved that record so much that I assigned a review of it like months before it came out which is ridiculous. But, um, and the, there weren't even titles on the cassette. It was a blank cassette. So the, the poor guy, I think it was Eric Davis who had to write about it. And he, he didn't know what the titles were except for maybe summer babe. Cause that was a pretty obvious and also maybe have, had been released as a single. I can't remember. Um, it's interesting that you, to you, it, I, I mean, you were, inside the sausage factory for lack of a better term like i was on the west coast i was in oregon at the time and spin seemed like this voice of authority and i think you know people use the term generation x because of douglas copeland but in the small byline the james greer i think is what legitimized it that basically the generation x magazine spin which had been christened as the post nirvana voice of new music had made these connections and so i think it's just interesting and maybe no longer historically possible that I could be sitting in a room in Oregon about the same age as you. And, and then there's this institutional authority that's telling me that these things are important. And, and, you know, a few weeks after Perry Farrell is writing them down, I'm writing them down as well. I'm curious later um, when Richard Linklater talked about how Slacker was promoted and probably this happened with Generation X as well, is that it's hard to it's hard for publicists to grab onto the specificity of a movie, especially a movie like Slacker. So they reached back and he sort of hinted that there was a there was an attempt on the part of the publicist to frame this as a generational thing. And so um did you get that sense? Did you get were publicists pitching this as a generational thing or was it, or, or was it a completely random act of free association when you were talking to, to Perry Farrell? No, that was, <clears throat> I mean, it was prepared, but it was, it was random um, in the sense that I randomly pulled those strands together before I talked to him um, because I didn't talk to movie publicists um, at that time. So if it was published, if they had publicized it that way, um, which was a really smart thing to do. Um, uh, they, you know, they wouldn't have been talking to me. Um, cause we didn't really cut, like there was a guy who covered movies there, but that wasn't even his main brief. He, he was like, you know, it was like, and you know, you'll do, you'll write about maybe one or two movies, you know, a month. Um, so, so it was, yeah, it was, it was definitely not, 
I mean, there, I, I won't, I won't pretend that there wasn't a sense of excitement. It's, and um, I have a hard time putting this into words for some reason when I'm, when I think about it in retrospect, because as I said, you know, my, 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 it wasn't my focus. My focus was just putting the magazine out every month. And it seemed like these deadlines were just never ending and never going away. And I burned out really quickly on it, actually, to be honest. I, I lasted in the office for about a year to two years. And then I had, <clears throat> and I just like, I, I, I moved, um, to Ohio and, uh, and like operated on a freelance base. More or less, I had a contract, but it was a more or less freelance. I just couldn't take being in that office and with all that pressure under that high pressure situation. But at the same time, there was, you know, being in New York city at that time and being, you know, and, um, uh, there just was, there was a sense that there was something going on. I don't, but I don't know that I thought it was a generational thing so much as just, a finally, it was, it was like these bands that, um, that had been just so firmly underground in the eighties, throughout the eighties, going from, you know, post-punk hardcore, you know, to like, you know, what became college rock even, um, you, you know, you had REM and then you, <clears throat> but then you had all these other bands like the replacements and Husker Du and, and, Bands like that, and even like the Pixies or bands like that, that just weren't that popular. People thought they were more popular than they were, maybe, but um, but they just were. And then when Nirvana happened, it's just it, it was just this explosion. And I can remember talking to people like Henry Rollins, for example, who said, you know, this is a revolution in the music business. Like all these guys who are driving around and in fancy cars with cigars and gold watches, like now they they're completely out of touch with what's going on. You know, they feel completely out of touch. And I was like, you know, in retrospect, he was, I mean, that was who we were talking probably 91, 92. And he was right to an extent, but it really actually, honestly, from my perspective, now looking back, I think it was actually the end of something rather than the beginning of something. I think that was the end of like rock music per se. Like Nirvana was sort of the end point for that underground rock movement that began let's call it with, with punk rock in the 70s and then sort of like reached its culmination in nirvana and after that it was just this this gradual dissipation um it, it's interesting how consumers like me sort of had to do back research on those other bands and in retrospect you know who's could do the pixies um, they hadn't been around that long, you know, as influencer bands. They were 80s bands, basically. And then Nirvana, you know, they had a 1989 album, but they blew up in, in 91 and 92. Mm -hmm. um, and and so, it, so it's interesting, you know, that, that, that there's this understanding that the zeitgeist has to do with the cutting edge, but then there's there's the consumers like me, you know, the people who, who weighed in and embraced the, these things and in a way sort of ruin it, you know, that um, when, when the Rolf... When the Rolf Potts of the world read the the James Greer articles and and buy this stuff and become interested in it stuff, then it becomes mainstreamed. Um, but, but I think it's interesting how say the Pixies became part of the backstory of Nirvana. And on, on on the note of Nirvana, I think it's interesting. I was just revisiting. I, I ordered that old Spin magazine issue on eBay just so I could reread it because it was sort of a. 
I, I don't think people have the same relationship to media that they had before. It was it was sort of a cherished object just because there's a lot of my favorite bands had been covered in it. I had been to Lollapalooza that summer, uh, and so I just read it and reread it a lot. And it's interesting how the the nineteen the December nineteen ninety one issue of Spin, there was very little Nirvana in it, or it, it, it was right. sort of it was sort of imbalanced. Like the year in music roundup didn't mention Nirvana at all. But um, my fault. I didn't didn't really like the the record that much. But um, but yeah, I know I I know what you mean. It was hard to ignore, but we somehow managed to. I think put Teenage Fan Club as the number one album of the year. Um, well, well, that was it. Nirvana made it into the roundup. They were number three. Teenage Fan Club was number one. The Pixies, Trompe Le Monde was number four. Soundgarden was in there. Fugazi oh. was in there. Massive Attack, Metallica, Pearl Jam. Hole was number twenty. And so it, it was just interesting. Actually, uh, Nevermind was reviewed in, in there as well. It got a positive review. Uh, I don't think you reviewed it. Uh, no. But it's interesting how f- for the fact that Nirvana um, changed the magazine, and I'm curious to know more about that, um, it, it had a fairly low profile. Basically, when Nirvana was blowing up, you could go to the newsstand, buy Spin magazine, and there were maybe 300 words about Nirvana in the magazine. <laughs> Yeah. Whereas, whereas Queen, Queensryche had like 2,000 words. So. Oh, God. So talk, yeah. talk a little bit about how that transformation period, because by the spring of 1992, Nirvana was huge and, and you know, entire ways of thinking about music were changing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, part of this had to do with the, uh, this, this fight. We were constant, this battle. We were constantly fighting with Bob Guccione, who wanted to sell magazines and where whereas we wanted to we thought we had a certain um audience that was best served by putting sonic youth on the cover for example um i remember this is like just before this happened that we had this huge editorial fight about whether to put sonic youth or billy idol on the cover and i was like yes billy idol will sell more magazines but sonic youth is our audience and that's who we want to that we want to grow that audience don't we and, you know, Bob was like, well, you wrote the article, Jim, of course, you, you, you're biased. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm biased, but I'm also, you know, there's three of us here. <laughs> um, or like, let's say there's three of us on staff and then you, and you're the only one who wants to put Billy Idol on the magazine. I mean, on the cover, but he, of course, won the battle, put Billy Idol on the cover and it sold better than any issue that year. So he was right. Well, I think one that. And then what happened with with Nirvana was that he got talked into like we would have put Nirvana on the cover like the the minute the record came out, but you know we always had to get past the the gauntlet run the gauntlet of, of Bob at the end of the day. But he had for whatever reason he had lunch with Danny Goldberg, who was um, a very influential figure. I think he was president of Atlantic at the time, but. But he used to run Gold Mountain Records, which I mean, sorry, Gold Mountain Management, which Nirvana was signed to. <clears throat> and it's in part named after him. And he's like, you got to put this band Nirvana on the cover. They're going to blow up. They're going to be huge. And, um, and Bob said, OK, we'll do that. And he's like, what do you guys think about putting Nirvana on the cover? And we're like, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, of course. It's like we've been trying to talk to you. This is exactly the type of band we want to put on the cover and that you won't let us put on the cover. And. So there was a little bit of delay there because there was always this resistance. Uh, you also have to remember magazine lead times at the time. So we were putting the 
um, December issued to bed probably in September. Right, which is when Nevermind dropped, I think. That's another thing that doesn't happen anymore. There's no more lead time, whereas that used to be a very real thing. Yeah, and it used to be a real pain in the ass too, especially with big bands where you'd had you're trying to review, say, the YouTube album in time for the album to come out, so that it didn't look like we were, you know, a month or two months behind. But you know, it would, try getting a cassette of that album out of them, um, which you know, but we did, you know, um, we managed it usually, but it was always this, you know, really, really a cassette. Can you believe I said that? It was a cassette. That's what advances were. All advanced records were on cassettes back then. Hmm. You would just get a cassette of, um, you know, like the new U2 album. And it's like, hmm, I wonder how much I could get if I went down to K-Rock with this right now <laughs> or whatever, whatever the radio station was. I mean, nobody ever did it, but um, no, we, we, we sold CDs. That was basically our supplemental income because we got everything. When it came out, they sent copies uh, record companies this is incredibly wasteful but um time that they sent they sent like everyone on staff everyone got a copy of everything that came out so you were getting something like 300 records a week and you know there's no way you were going to listen to them there's no way you had time to listen to them so you just go down to saint mark's you know on eighth and sell your promo cds and they were happy to take them and that would be like a, a supplement to your wage that without which you couldn't, you know, again, you couldn't exist in New York City. Where was the spin office located back then? And it was on 18th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. Okay. Um, on the 11th floor, I want to say. I don't It was just a, yeah. And at the time, I mean, now, I mean, I can only imagine what's there now, but... um. It wasn't like a, it was certainly was not a glamorous, um, location or, or even a particularly convenient one, except in the sense that it was sort of kind of close, generally close to everything. Well, I know, so I know people who got in, in that sort of union square area who got real estate around that time and it, it has blown up since then. Um, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. It, it's interesting, you know, the idea that, that writers for Spin were selling C- review CDs to help ends meet. Another curiosity about those old issues of Spin magazine is the classified ads, uh, <laughs> and it's interesting how quickly those became obsolete. Lead. I mean, now the Craigslist is like the metaphor for how we understand classified ads. But when you reverse engineer, when you go back and look at them, they just seem really weird. That like Spin magazine was sort of influencing the taste of marginal alternative culture at the time, but also selling like glow in the dark underwear and nude calendars and psychic readings. I I didn't even know we, I couldn't, I did until you said that I didn't remember that we ever even sold classified ads. I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't remember that. Obviously I knew it at the time. I'm sure it's just been the thing that was great about the magazine for me. Um, was that it was disposable to me was that it like if I wrote something no matter how bad it was it was going to disappear in a month and I would never have to worry about it again <laughs> and then fucking internet came along and you know at scanners and everything lives forever 
Right. Yeah. Um, no, it's there's uh that issue is it's part of the Google Books project. I think you can find old yeah. old issues of Spin. Uh, yep. I, I was I remember somebody somebody saying that, and I was just like my reaction was just sheer horror. I was like, no, no. The whole point of that was like I would never have to. It's like you know it's, it's revisiting your your juvenilia, you know, just like in but. Um, I mean, I, I haven't. I, I mean, I won't. I won't go back and look. I haven't. There was there was one article I wrote that um, uh, about. I, I wrote a fake scene report um, as a spoof, an April Fool's joke. Actually, I don't remember when, and I don't remember. And it caused. It was like, apparently, it it was so convincing, even though I thought it was an obvious parody that like major label reps actually flew to this town, tiny town in Virginia called New Market, which <laughs> how, how more blatant can you be than to call a place New Market, right. Virginia. And that was actually the editor's idea. I, I had said it somewhere else. And, um, but yeah, so the, that somebody, uh, this professor, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I can't remember his name because he's, he's a good guy. He, he does the, he's the guy who, who works on copyright law copyright um he's done dvds he's done a book about it on um anyway um he's doing a documentary on hoaxes and tricks and things like that and so he interviewed me for that but i had not read that article until i sat down and he put it in front of me um and i i was like i was i was sort of half like how could anyone take this seriously and then also half like well this isn't too bad <laughs> you know, as as a piece of writing, it's like ah, this is this is mildly entertaining. It's not horrible. I'm not that embarrassed by it. Well, famously, uh, didn't the New York Times call Sub Pop uh, and do a trend piece, and like the intern on the other line just made up a bunch of terms like lame stain and oh, they, absolutely, they, uh, they, yeah, that they, happened. And not only that, like they, that intern was brilliant. I mean, because the the jargon that she came up with off the top of her head was amazing. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, if she did that, like right, right then and right there. I mean, I, I'm like, that's whoever you know. That person should be. Yeah. That that occurred to me that like, like the the verbal specificity of the fake trend language that she told the New York Times was just very, very sharp. And in fact, somewhere out there, there's a blog. There's a a '90s ephemera blog called Lame Stain. Um, <laughs> and and so so it's interesting that you could you could trick people back then like, oh, yeah. like yeah, you yeah. did in a way that is maybe not as possible anymore there's no way yeah that would never fly today because a simple google search would reveal that none of the places i wrote about existed none of the bands had and you know existed none of you know nothing in that article that would be very easy to to find i mean that would be sussed out in in like literally 90 seconds um so yeah you, you couldn't do that um today there are things like that that you couldn't do um and I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> it's probably both. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's just a different it's a different category of trickery. So yeah. yeah. So so you um. Now this might be a connection I made that's not accurate, but did the end of your tenure at Spin more or less c coincide with the death of Kurt Cobain and your yes. discomfort with wanting to write about that? That's um, no, that's precisely what happened. 
Okay. I think I, I think I wrote about that in like a 25th or 30th anniversary. They asked me to write something. I don't remember. I've written about it a couple of places. I don't remember. But yeah, I mean, that's basically what happened was um, I was in Seattle on an unrelated assignment. Um, I, I knew Kurt. Um, How well did you know him? I knew him pretty as well as anybody can know Kurt. I mean, he, he was, he was a, he was a, a largely unknowable character, um, even to like his closest friends. Um, but, um, I was, um, I knew him basically mainly through my relationship with Kim Deal from the Pixies who, um, I was going out with during that period and, you know, they were, Kurt and her were, were very good friends. So I was just sort of like included in that by association. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I knew him and I, I also knew, and, and, uh, Nils Bernstein, who was, who was the head publicist at Sub Pop. I was doing a story on Sub Pop. It was there, it was their sixth anniversary on that Saturday. Um, I believe, which is when you think about it, it's amazing. It was only their sixth anniversary. Truly, uh, yeah. And and this is 1994. So um, I was in town, and Kurt. I mean, sorry, Niels and I um, went out a bunch, and would just sort of gossip and like, "Have you heard the latest? Like, he escaped from rehab, and now he's up at the house, and he he's torn. He's he's taken out all the phones, or whatever. He take he's he's." It disconnected all the phones. He won't answer. Um, and I'm like, oh, God, this isn't going to end well. I mean, but I didn't really think, like, too much about it. Like, because stuff was always happening with it. You know, there was always drama um, involved with him and Courtney. Um, and then, so then, yeah, but then one morning while I was there, I woke up and, or I didn't wake up. I was woken up by a call from from the office in New York and um, this editorial assistant said, you know, do, have you heard? And I'm like, no, what, heard what I just, well, you're waking me up. It's, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. It's ungodly that anyone would be calling me at this hour. And, um, and he said, just, you know, turn on the TV. And I, I, I knew, I mean, I, and call me, he said, turn on the TV and call me back. And I knew at that moment what, what had happened. I mean, I just, I, I knew, but I turned on the TV and it was on every channel um, that Kurt had killed himself. And, um, so then I was presented with a choice or a moral choice, um, because, because Kim then flew into town for the memorial, um, you know, but Spin wanted me to cover the show. So I had the choice of either sort of mourning him as a friend or reporting on him as a reporter. And I chose the former. Um, and, and just like, I, I don't know, I just, I just, I just, there were things that happened that weekend that sort of soured me on the whole idea of just journalism in general, <laughs> just like, cause the, they decided to go ahead and hold the sub pop party. Um, because it would have been too, I mean, you know, everyone was already on the way. It was just, you know, I think they discovered his body on Thursday uh, or Friday, and then the party was on Saturday. So it was, there just wasn't time to cancel it. 
was the feeling. So uh, like every journalist in the world, because of course, whether they had been intending to go to the party or not, came in to cover, you know, the, this big story of, of her suicide. And, you know, there was a guy at the party who was like, you know, well, you know, um, is it like, said something like, well, you know, nobody wants to do this kind of story, but if somebody has to do it, I'm glad it's me, you know, because, you know, I, I, I you know, because I had a, whatever, because he had a, a connection to the, to the band and to Kurt or something like that. And, you know, just stuff like that, just people's attitude towards it was the journalists attitude, other journalists attitude that I saw at the party or that I talked to just seemed like completely, uh, just seemed a bit vulturish to me. Um, just like they were, they couldn't wait to pick over his bones. And I, I know that's not true. And I'm, 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 you know, that's just how it struck me. I was young. I was immature. I might not have made the same decision if I had been in the, in the same, I don't, I mean, I don't, it's impossible to say, I actually, I might've made, I, I think I've made the right choice. And I talked a lot to Niels about it and he was like, you don't have to do this. You shouldn't, no one should tell you that you have to do this. And, um, and he was like, yeah, you know, and then he gave me more of his Xanax prescription. And, um, and I was like, yeah, you know, you're right. I don't have to do this. The problem is I didn't tell. <laughs> I didn't handle it very well. I just sort of like left town huh. and left them with like having to pull together an issue over the weekend. Um, and so somebody else wrote about it then? I'm, I don't know. Yes, probably. Yes. Okay. I don't know who they got, um, but they got somebody. I mean, like the stuff they wanted me to do. It's like I was in the house, you know, I was at Kurt's house with his mom and his sister and with Courtney and like, you know, and whatever other friends. And, and then some, you know, there were some record company people there obviously. And, um, that was the saddest part actually for me, but, but, you know, and then the, the reporters were on the others, you know, outside of the house, like being kept away by barriers. And there was also you know a lot of fans out there that wanted to mourn. And I was like, I, I didn't want to be on the other side of the fence. I wanted to be on this side of the fence, but in order to be on this side of the fence, I had, I was, I could not write about it. You know, that would be, that would have been insane. I mean, that would have been an insane, you know, invasion of privacy in the first place, but also just like, I, I just didn't want to, I just, I mean, I, 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 I'm glad I did what I did. Um, and then after that, it was, what was I, was I, did I quit or was I fired? I mean, you, it just depends who you. What do you make of like the legend of Kurt Cobain as it exists now? Um, and I asked because I was I actually lived in Seattle in the summer of '93, uh, and I saw a show that they played at the last minute for the Mia Zapata um, investigation fund. Mia Zapata being the singer of the Gits who was murdered in Seattle. Right. Um, and it felt like. At that point, he he was very teeny tiny and not very healthy looking when I saw him on stage. And there was a little, there was some shade throwing. Uh, it, it was sort of a weird moment in that the Seattle hipsters, I, I don't know if we called them that back then, but the, yeah. the the Seattle scene had a cynicism toward him at the time that doesn't seem to exist anymore. He's He's like a sainted figure now, whereas it felt at the time, you know, within a year of his death, 
there was this cynicism toward what he represented, and it was the kind of cynicism. It's almost as if his own cynicism came full circle. That the uh, that the the young people in the audience who sort of had a Kurt Cobain sensibility of about the world had come to dislike Kurt Cobain for being somehow an in- authentic manifestation of that. You know, um, that's interesting. Um, I. I get the sense, I mean, like, I've always got the sense with Kurt was that he, his cynicism was, was a defense mechanism. I mean, he was just like this really emotionally vulnerable person and a really, really sweet person, you know, deep down, but like his default response would be, you know, to, you know, say something sarcastic, you know, um, but if you just, if you just like his way of saying hello would be like, you know, you're like, what the fuck's your problem or something like, like exaggerated. And if you just said, you know, shut up, he'd be like, Oh yeah. Uh, then he'd turn sincere. You know what I mean? Hmm. Um, and I think that part of, uh, like I would say 70% of this had to do with his heroin addiction. Um, because it caught, and then like, okay, that's, I, I can't put percentages on thing, but there was a percentage of this that had to do with his heroin addiction. There was a percentage of which, was um, him have he was the reason you may have felt some some shade from the scene people is because he withdrew from them because he had to withdraw from them because he couldn't hang out with them in the same way anymore just because he was too famous on the one hand but also because he was a junkie so there was like it was the and also because you know he he just yeah he he had this codependent relationship with with Courtney that where I think they just clung to each other. And spent, you know, and he cut off a lot of his former, he wasn't, not that he was ever a socialite or anything like that, but I think there was probably a friendly relationship between him and a lot of, you know, the bands there. And then there's probably some jealousy, just plain old jealousy. Like, why are you famous? You know, why did they pick you out of all of us? You know, I thought, you know, it's like the grunge scene was supposed to be like all these bands. We all, you know, we're all great. You know, we all sound it's like, why, why did you get to be, what's so special about you? Like, I know you, you're not special. That, which happens to anybody that gets famous. They, you know what I mean? It's always like, and, and they have their own insecurities about that. There's just so much, it's such a complex, you know, subject because, um, well, I because think- I, Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think that in a way you can't control your audience either, because one thing that struck me standing in line for that show, I think it was August of 93, is that Nirvana by that time was being played on AOR stations that also played like Leonard Skinner, you know, and you had, you know, Kurt complained about normal people, but just not, not just normal people, but just like, um, working class guys and, and, um, suburban randoms you know it was just somehow um it's that frat boy mentality that i think he really um you know the bro what we call today you know like the bro type um and that that did you know i mean he was very much um i mean he was he he it's like it's that it is that thing it's like i wanted to be famous but not this famous and it's like you can't control that you know it's like i wanted to be successful but not this successful um you know you know what i mean it's like he wanted he really tried i mean they all really tried they wanted that they wanted a gold record that was basically what they thought the limit of their 
you know, success could be based on what uh, the on precedent. Um, and that was the record company's goal. That was management's goal. And that was the band's goal. They were hoping to get like maybe to be on that level of success, like a sub REM level of success. And then, you know, it just exploded and spiraled out of control. And he was, he was, you know, he was made miserable by it. A lot of people were made miserable by it. Eddie Vedder was made miserable by it. Um, or at least seemed to be <laughs> miserable. Um, well, Eddie Vedder is still around. And so yeah, I know. Next, I, know. Well, next uh, I mean, is almost 25 years ago when, when Nirvana was blowing up. So what if Kurt was still around? What do you think his career and persona would be like? I have no idea. Um, I, I think it would look like something like what he was moving towards, which was, I know he was talking to Michael Stipe about working on a solo album together. He wanted to go more in an acoustic you know, a softer direction. I think he just would have been, I don't know, you know, I have no idea. I don't know if that band was very volatile, but I think they also, um, they just did in the sense they were volatile in the sense that they were very passive aggressive and didn't talk to each other. So there was a lot of tension, but they, it didn't really get discussed. And so I think that, that was part of, they were all the, just the type of personalities that they were. They were not confrontational personalities in that band. So they, um, so they didn't really talk about things. They just sort of stewed about them. But I think there was so much pressure, outside pressure on them to keep going um, that he certainly felt trapped. And I don't know about, I don't know if the other guys, you know, I'm sure that they were, there was less pressure on them to be, you know, to be fair. Um, they just wanted, you know, like we're, we're playing in this band. We're, you know, making this money. Um, not make it, it's not, it was never about the money, but you know, they, they didn't have to deal with the level of, I guess, you know, hero worship or whatever you want to call it. And it has it, it has absolutely increased in the year. I mean, you know, that's what happens when you kill yourself at 27 and you're at the pinnacle of your career. I mean, you, you know, we've seen it, seen this before throughout rock history with, you know, Hendrix and um, Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin and so on and so on fourth and Ian Kurt Ian Curtis you know I mean it's just like people get cemented at it, you know they become icons they become not you know and that's what that's what's been a little bit weird of just reading like a new generation of people and embracing Kurt Cobain is that they embrace him you know maybe in the way that our generation embraced um Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison at the mythic level um instead of the real-time level actually um Moving a little bit further into the '90s, you said that you were dating Kim Deal at the time. That was your the way you yes. met uh, Kurt. Did you meet her through journalism or music or something else? Um, uh, I we just got set up by a mutual friend who was a music publicist. So, uh, I guess technically through journalism, but it wasn't like it wasn't it wasn't like you know I wasn't interviewing her. I, it was not. Um, you know, it wasn't like that. One of those things where you go on an interview, one of those things that never happens where you go on an interview and like you guys fall in love. No, we, we were just like, I, I, we happened to, be, I happened to be in LA doing a story on, I think Richard Thompson. And, um, uh, there was this publicist friend of mine that was actually married to or going out with their drummer. And she said, well, you guys should go out, you know, you guys should, you know, you guys should meet, and when we did. 
And you must have been familiar with the Pixies music by then, right? Mm. Yeah, I wasn't a fan. <laughs> oh, but you that's interesting. That, that's interesting. Well, one, one thing about Kim Deal during that era is that obviously you uh, weren't, weren't into her music. You met her on a blind date, but it was almost like she specifically of all the female musicians in that era was a person, but also an archetype of like female authenticity. And speaking of classified ads, I remember reading alternative news weeklies in, in the personals would say like looking for Janine Garofalo slash Kim Deal type, right? <laughs> I mean, what is that? What is that? <laughs> well, again, I, mean, again, two, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, I know both of them, so I know like those are completely different people. But, but I see what you're saying. I mean, I guess, I guess, I, I guess, I understand what you're saying. But that's impossible. I'm just like not objective enough to to sure. be able to comment on that because, uh, I mean, when you talk about authenticity, yeah, that's basically that's yeah, it's it's a she was couldn't really be anything other than herself. So there was no there was no thought process and no like, the opposite of someone like a, a Courtney Love, who was basically all she ever did was think about how her, her image and how to present it. And, you know, um, how, you know, what producer to get, you know, that would look good. Um, um, and, you know, you know, she was doing band photos, even though she didn't have a record, yeah, just stuff like, you know, it was all about image, image, image. And whereas with somebody like. Kim, it was just about just the music. That's all that she thought about or cared about and didn't give a fuck about anything else. That's great. In, in a way that they were both revered in the 90s, even though they were completely different. They were both they were both revered. Yeah. And I think, you know, the reason that, that she was paired up in a personals ad with Jeanine Garofalo, you know, was completely emblematic of the shallowness with which people um, receive um, or or regard, I, maybe it's just sort of a no makeup beauty type thing. I don't know, but it, it occurred to me that I remember Could reading be. that in a personals ad and thinking, "Wow, that's specific." You know, <laughs> that person has a very is going to be very disappointed <laughs> in life, um, probably because I don't I don't you know I don't think that that type exists. Um, I mean, I mean, as a type, I mean, if you mean type, if you mean like a girl. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. it could be yeah. as simple as like dark haired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get it. You know, uh, pretty Not person. Tall. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, was there, just because uh, she was the other pole to, court, to a Courtney Love persona, was, um, d did that ever enter the relationship? I mean, was there ever weirdness directed towards you because you were dating someone who was so identifiable? Uh,. I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I don't, uh, again, um, that, that whole period of my life was, um, was pretty in a lot of ways, pretty dark and, and, um, destructive and, and drunken three D's. Hmm. Um, so, so, so I, I just don't, um, I don't, I don't, I choose, I choose not to remember a lot of it. Hmm. Um, and I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that I went through, I mean, all experiences are valuable in the end. Um, but basically that one just taught me that, um, uh, I, <laughs> for me to do what I want to do, which is writing, I need to be much more self-disciplined and, and, um, uh, stay away from, um, 
I mean, I st- it's not like I went into AA or anything like that, but I d- definitely cut way back on the drinking and, um, and I just had to move away from a, a style of life and a circle of people that was basically, you know, where that was paramount. And that includes being in Guided by Voices for a brief period and, you know, where that was just, it was all about drinking. And there were hard drugs around, not with Guided by Voices, but with other people. And, you know, that just, it's just, it wasn't like it was out, I was out of control or anything like that, but it was just, it was just non-productive. It was a very non-productive time of my life. So you, so you, did you go to Dayton? You moved to Dayton, right? Yes. Um, that's cool. And then did that period end when you left Dayton or, or uh... yeah, 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 pretty much. I mean, I left, I left Dayton in, I guess I would say 97. And then I just sort of like wandered the earth for, um, to use the Pulp Fiction term for like Kane and Kung Fu. Exactly. <laughs> um, for like three years. And landed in L.A. Um, in like 2000, um, where I got a job at a magazine called Raygun, which was because um, a former colleague of mine at Spin, um, Mark Blackwell, was kind of running that magazine at the time. So he got me this job, which was sort of like a lifeline at the time. Um, and it actually paid better than, than like – I'd ever made it. I was living, it was like 30 grand a year. I was like, wow. Well, and this is in 2001, 2000, yeah. in okay. 2000, 2000, 2001. Um, and then I, I was like, am I, th-? and this is like every single person who, who moves to LA or every single writer was like, okay, I'm going to, I'll move to LA, but I am not going to get sucked into the movie business. It was like, you know, cause I had that East coast sort of snobbery against the movements within like three months I was writing a screenplay and uh, it, like within a year, there was like uh, you know our you know my first movie came out. Um, and which movie was that? That was called Max Keeble's Big Move. It was a family movie for Disney, a Disney movie. Okay. Um, that I co-wrote again with with Jonathan Bernstein, who's my long time. That was the first we movie we co-wrote together and um, have continued to work together. Um. And with did, some, did you guys do Just My Luck? We did that, yeah. I that was one. I was an extra in that movie. I lived in New really? Orleans in 2005. Oh, yeah. Oh. Um, well, I wasn't on the set, so you. I mean, but I've heard reports that that Lindsay Lohan was not um, maybe at her best. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I witnessed it myself. It, it was very novel. It was very novel. You have you have a strange amount of access as extras, if not you know, interactionally than just visually. Sure. And, and she was very, I mean, she was 17 or 18 at the time. And um, yeah. she was sort of a Godzilla version of, of, of a 17 or 18 year old. Um, and it was just sort of strange to behold. So this, this is an interesting turning point in your career because like you're, you've, you lived one of the most nineties ish nineties stretches of anybody I've ever talked to, you know, yeah. that, uh, yeah. that, uh, so- 90s, yeah, I know. I've been trying to escape that. <laughs> it's like, not uh, trying to escape that, honestly, but, but it's like, uh, but, but like, because when I started playing, I hadn't played music for, I stopped playing music, you know, for a long time. And then I started this, I started up this band and I just couldn't get away from the Guided by Voices thing, you know, because um, um, I just, I, you know, that was just how anybody knew me. It's like he used to play in Guided by Voices. Right. And, um, and it just like eventually, I mean, it, Eventually, I think I managed to escape it to a certain point, but it was just like it got 
to the point it was just so annoying. I was like, I was in this band for like a minute and a half, 20 years ago. I mean, at the time, you know, that I started the band it was 20 years ago. Now it's 25 years ago. And it's like, um, it's like, why, you know, why is that so important to anyone? Well, I think I think guided by voices is another one of those authenticity identifiers in in music culture yeah. that I I spent a lot of time in the Portland music scene in the early '90s and those okay. those musicians like my favorite bands were actually fans of guided by voices. I don't know if you've heard of a tribute band called Giant Bug Village. Yes, the Stan McMahon or Chris Lucerenko. Slusserenko, yeah, Sl- yeah. yeah. I used to go when he was in a band. He was in a sub pop band called Sprinkler. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so it's one of those things like uh, Guided by Voices is not, I, I'm not deeply invested in them as a band, but I know that they have this. Again, it's like it's like having been into Pavement in 1991 or going to see Dead Moon in 1990 or something that somehow it's an authenticity signifier. So I can see how it would hang over you. Um, yeah. Reputation wise, but really, you 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 turned a very sharp corner because you went from being very vested in again what would retroactively be called hipster culture in the 1990s, and then suddenly you're writing family movies for Disney and novels. I, yeah. Uh, so 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 talk a little bit about that. Your your um. Well, I mean, you get you get. I mean, ultimately, like with the movie business, it's like you write what they want to buy, you know, and like it just happened that like Jonathan in particular had more experience with this because um, he'd actually done something. He's from Scotland, um, from Glasgow originally, and he had done a little bit of writing for the BBC. So he had some experience, but he loved, he actually wrote a book about um, John Hughes. He loved teen movies. Hmm. Um, and the first thing that we did was a, a kind of a 16 Candles ripoff um, that got set up at Miramax by... Um, um, and this is going to sound familiar, uh, by, by Courtney Love, okay. um, for, for, um, for, because like for about five minutes, she decided she wanted to be a producer because, uh, she broke up with Ed Norton and she wanted to prove that she could do stuff too. Um, but then she realized that it was hard work. I don't want to badmouth Courtney because for, without her, like, you know, I would not be in the movie business, but at the same time, you know, um, it was kind of funny because she just sort of like lost interest in the movie business very quickly when it became clear as a producer anyway that, you know, this was not easy, hmm. um, that there was just a lot of front work involved. But by then, my, you know, Jonathan and I, our career had kind of taken off. So, I mean, like we got an, through the, because of that, we got an agent because of that, because our agent had a relationship with Disney. We started meeting people at Disney because that then they asked us this was actually a rewrite project but we completely rewrote the script that came before us and turned it into this thing max Keeble's big move and um and that's just and then then all of a sudden you get stuck and you're like okay we're writing we write family comedies and we write um you know sort of romantic comedies um and that and that's that's where you or just comedies and then like you know 2008 happened and the movie business turned upside down um, because of the recession and the writer's strike. Um, and the types of movies that we were writing stopped getting made, period. Um, and so there was a, a fallow spell there for a while. But, um, but now, I, I, now we've got 
we've we've made a turn into we're doing like horror thriller type stuff now. And is it true you're you're making or you wrote a script for Steven Soderbergh on a movie that he shot with a phone? That is correct, but it's a bit misleading because when Steven shoots a a movie on a phone, it just means he's using a small camera. Because <laughs> because um you know he. He and yes, it's a small, much smaller crew, and yes, it's a you know, it's not the full, but it you will not when it comes out, you will not be able to tell he shot it on a on his phone. Um, he you know he, he used he still used like professional sound and professional lighting, and um, it just I mean not much lighting because he never uses much lighting, but the the chip that's in the iPhone, it is. You know, obviously, it's it's not anywhere near the level of the chip that's in a, 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 an expensive digital uh, camera like the Red. But he, you know, he's always been his own cinema, not always, but he's almost always his own cinematographer. So he knows how to shoot stuff, and he knows how to edit stuff. And he just, I mean, it's it's um, you know, and the the actors weren't particularly because there's still something pointed at them. You know what I mean? It was in a rig, kind of like a handheld rig. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like he was just taking this phone like you would, you and I would do, like just like sort of like trying to balance it. It was in this kind of a Steadicam rig type of thing for most of the time, and then or or it was on a tripod. So it was like for the actors, it was just like you know, there's the camera. Um, I'm and, cur- Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, he just wanted. It was an. He'd been taking. He'd been filming with his phone for a few years, and he'd been like just wanted something um that fit the material so he i when i i told i ran jonathan actually had this idea for for sort of a a psychological horror thriller movie and he said great you know if you can write it in you know make it really low budget you know put it in one location you know we'll make it in you know six months so we wrote we took 10 days to make it to to write the script and then he took 10 days to shoot the movie <laughs> and I was like it's not a race Stephen but um but uh, you know I have uh, you know he edits as he goes along as he does on any movie on his big movies on his little movies and um you know so I saw by the time he was done I saw almost the whole movie and uh, you know in a rough assembly you know in a in his hotel room on a screen but still you know and, but it, you know it looked great and he hadn't even done any of the VFX or you know, sound work or anything to it. So I've been assured by him and by other people that have seen it that, you know, you will not be able to tell, the audience will not be able to tell that it was shot on a phone. Which almost begs the question of why shoot it on a phone then? But um... there were things that there were things that he could do that you can't do with a camera, just angles he could get, close ups that he could do. You can strap iPhone with the rig to a camp to a, to an actor's back and 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 have them and drag them down the hall and get a shot that you could never get. You could get it. You could do a shot above them where if you were using a regular camera, you would have to have like three ropes holding up, and if it fell, it would kill the actor. <laughs> or you could just instead you just stand on a ladder above them now and and hold the phone, and it's very very easy. It's very easy to get oh uh, you know. A number of shots that you can't get the things that you give up is you can't control to a certain extent you can't control um the depth of focus it has like a really 
it has infinite depth of focus and you can't sort of, I mean, I guess now you can, but on the seven plus that he was using, you couldn't, but he was using, the other thing is he's using professional lenses. He's not, you know, he's, and he's not, and he's using a software program that like allows him to control the aperture in ways that, you know, you can't normally control an iPhone camera. So there's a lot of like technical stuff, you know, that that's involved. But at the same time, it was yeah, it was it, it enabled him to shoot a feature length movie in in ten shooting days, which is you know basically uh, two weeks, and um, you know and make it for a an incredibly small budget number that then because he has everyone to buy in on his distribution model, which is essentially a profit participation program, that then we all stand to make a lot of money in a situation where if that was a studio movie, we would not. That's really, he's, he's been doing fascinating things since he began. I, I remember reading, he published his film journal for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. This was, again, back in the book and magazine era. And I remember reading that and sort of being able to get into his creative process when he did that. I, I, he has a website where I saw a mix that he did where he, he basically takes the sound out of Raiders of the Lost Ark, recasts it in a very harsh black and white, and adds the the Atticus Finch, Trent Reznor soundtrack from the Social Network, um, and it's just a fascinating thing to watch. Yeah, he 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 um, he loves editing. Um, he loves cutting, um, as he calls it, and and like I, he just can't stop. He's so he's a restless restless human being. Um, he tried to retire, he couldn't couldn't do it. Um, and, and instead of retiring, he's like tripled his workload because now he, he's figured out ways to do things like with Mosaic um, that he just did, you know, with the branching narratives where he has to shoot incredible amounts of, of, of script pages per day just to, you know, get this thing done in, on time and under budget. Same thing on the Nick. He was on the under. And then obviously then he, he, he's like, I'm going to take that and I'm going to smash through that barrier with you know, this, this iPhone movie where he could, and he did, there was one day I, I know, I remember counting where we shot 22 or 23 pages in one day in like 12, 12 hours. And that's like, I, I that's wow. just not heard of. That's the unheard of on, on movie sets. Typically you, you do like, you know, two or three pages. He did 23. It's insane. Um, it's unsane, if you will. Um, and that's the name of the movie, right? Yeah, that's his title. How did you get associated with, did you know him in the 90s? Or how did you, it, this is another interesting twist, because you went from sort of very um, cutting edge music world in the 90s, then to Disney movies, and now Steven Soderbergh, who's this you know great filmmaker of our time. How did you meet him and get involved with him? Well, I mean, it all ties together in a way, because he is a, um, he was a fan of uh, Guided by Voices, a big fan. And... Um, I met him backstage, not, I mean, long after in like 2005 when the band was breaking up for the first time. Um, I wasn't in the band, but I was there and we were introduced and we started talking about a project that he had been thinking about a long, for a long time about doing a, um, uh, a rock music, um, rock musical sorry, rock musical about the life of Cleopatra starring Catherine Zeta-Jones and using the music of Guided by Voices, but rewritten lyrics and re-recorded. Um, wow. And that was a project that actually we were, I'd already, and this was 
2006, he 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 was just like emails me out of the blue. Hey, you want to write? You want to write this? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yes, of course. Um, and I think I mean he knew I was a screenwriter, but but also he you know he knew I knew the music, and so it seemed, I guess it probably seemed logical to him um, that I would be good for this project. Um, and also we got along. I mean we just we hit it off basically. You know, um, we got along. We have the same very dry sense of humor, um, at least via email. Um, and so I wrote that and like he liked it and we were going to do it. And then like two weeks before we even went in the studio and re-recorded all this stuff. And I, I helped with that, um, with like session guys, like the got one of the, the drummer from the spider from Mars, five spiders from Mars, um, David Bowie's band. Um, and, so it got that far along the road and then like Hugh, what's his name? Hugh Jackman was going to play Anthony. Um, he pulled out because he, um, he decided he was going to host the Oscars instead. Um, so it would have been like 2008, 2009, something like that. And so it was just like Stephen tried for a week or two to recast it, but then he said, you know what? I don't want to just plug movie star X into this role. I want to wait. Um, and then he decided he was going to retire. And then he said, we're going to do it on, you know, as a stage musical. And then that didn't quite come together. Um, but, you know, all the time we've kept in touch and talked about other projects. He hired me to adapt a book called The Sotweed Factor by John Barth for oh, yeah. like a 10 part, um, like mini series type of thing wow. that. Um, that we still, um, and I did it, but, um, you know, it's, and it's on the to-do list somewhere down the road, but it's like, it's really, really hard because the book is 750 pages of pure plot and there's nothing you can cut. You can't cut anything. And so the challenge has been how to present the incredible amount of exposition and information that needs to be presented in the first episode, particularly that will set the template for the rest of the episodes and we just haven't nailed it yet. And, um, I think that the, the, actually the template that he, he established with mosaic would, would lend itself to this, but this is not, you know, this is not something we've discussed. So he typically does not like it when I discuss projects that are not, uh, um, that are underway, but haven't been realized that he just, he just, he's a very, very, um, secretive person for, for a while he denied the existence of unsane huh. um, uh, on interviews because he didn't want it to detract from logan lucky which he was doing publicity for at the time um so you know he would just be like prove to me this movie exists <laughs> show me it's like to the journalist you know it's like you know it's just hilarious um but you know he's he's now obviously not do uh, the embargo on, on actually admitting that it exists is now over. I can't say anything else about it other than it's out March 23rd, um, okay. in theaters everywhere. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it was a great experience. That's the first thing that we've actually done that we, that we, you know, where we, that's been made, uh, the, the, the first project I've worked on with him that, we've actually made, but I have worked with, been working with him since about 2006 on various things that just never for one reason or another uh, have happened yet. Not to say that they never will. Um, 
but they just they haven't yet. And there's a few other things in the pipeline, but you know, again, I'm not supposed to talk about that stuff. So, well, that sounds like a good professional problem to have. You know, that writing, yes. adapting a, a John Barth novel for Steven Soderbergh and not knowing when it's going to come out is there's there's worse vocational complications in life. So I feel bad for John Barth actually because you know he's he's still alive and um, but um, you know he's not getting any younger. I think he's like 83, maybe 82, 83 or something like that. And I'm just like. It would be nice if we could get this done and he could see it. That, that that's just like that's again, I don't think he cares. <laughs> I, that's just me being selfish. Right, right. He he's already been paid, you know, like Stephen paid him for the book, so it's not like he gets any more money. Or maybe he does. I don't know. I have no idea. Um I don't I doubt he needs it. But um That's his big novel, right? That's his most recognizable novel. That one and Giles or Giles Giles Goat Boy. Okay, um, right. And then um, there's the the book of short stories, I think, that he wrote, which I can't remember the name of off the top of my head because, again, I have a terrible memory, um, is like one of the things that he tends to be um, really well known for because he's, you know, he, he was like sort of a poster board for like, um, you know, postmodern. Um, yeah, Lost in the Fun House was the. Okay. Short story collection that, um, thank God for the internet. Um, that, that was also, you know, very well known. I mean, like th these things, Saltweed Factor was a, um, was a bestseller, you know? I mean, it's like this 750 parody of a historical novel that is, um, you know, it's bestseller and, and Giles Goatboy is 800 pages. Um, wow. <laughs> and you know, and these things, these things were best. I mean, he was, you know, he was, he, he, um, it's amazing, and he and he finished all of these books, including uh, the Floating Opera and the End of the Road. His End of the Road is two first books um, before he was thirty. Just something that wow, you can I'm you, impressed by. In a sense, you can see why Steven Soderbergh is is uh, is interested in him. So yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's interested in in so many things. I mean, he's like he's just it's weird what what interests in him and what doesn't. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not weird. It's just, it's, it's always, I can't predict, you know, I'm never going to know. I wouldn't have predicted that this is the, that the unsane would have been a movie that he would want to make. Um, well, I remember just even that peek into his thought process in his film journal from 1990, there's a memorable scene where he has his planner and somebody arbitrarily steals it off of a restaurant table. And <laughs> just the, the amount of panic that that induces in him, you know, he, he just seems like a guy who has many, many ducks in a row. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He typically has like two or three years planned out. It doesn't always pan out that way. You know, like what that, and that's why he doesn't like to talk about it right. because like, because there are so many things that fall through. Or there are so many things that happen but don't happen when when they're, they were in, originally intended to happen that he just prefers it if, like, it doesn't get announced until it's actually finished. You know what I mean? And it's ready to be in, like, there's no, you know, there's no chance of it. Well, there's always a chance. I mean, we might all die tomorrow. And, um, and that, that makes sense, you know. That I, I think just not wanting to be held accountable for your previous time frame, um, I can see as prolific as he is, I can see how it might be irritating um, for him to be. Yeah, absolutely. That. It's like, well, what, what's what's going on with this thing that you talked about? And I was like, oh, well, you know, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, and it's 
as as on the on my end, as a writer, it can be frustrating sometimes because it's like you know you want to say, oh, I'm doing this, 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 and this, and it's like, but you can't. And then even if you do, you know, like to to try to get other work in Hollywood, even if you go like, yeah, I'm like, you know, I'm working on this and this for Steven Soderbergh, it's like, yeah, sure you are. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you know, it's like I, I haven't heard anything about it. It's not in the trades, you know. It's not like um. It's not real, um, which is why, yeah, which is another reason I'm very glad that this actually came to fruition, this, this thing. Um, and again, it's an, it's an experiment both in, in execution and how he does it, but it's also an experiment, a continuing experiment in, in, cell, in distribution because he's, he's trying to, change the paradigm by or the structure by which movies are made and distributed um and he's been so, doing that for a while i mean 10 years ago he was talking about that sort of thing you know? he wanted to do day and date you know releases and uh, you know he he tried and he ran up ran into you know yeah some a lot of resi resistance there it just wasn't the, the world wasn't ready for it yet um this self-distribution thing is much more it's 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 much more straightforward. It's just it makes sense if you can if you can do it. I mean, like um, essentially, you you put up you put up the money yourself to make the movie, which he's in a position to do, and a lot of people are not. Um, and then you sell off, you sell the foreign rights, you sell the um, streaming rights, um, and you use some of that money or some or all of that money, whatever you need to pay for PNA, which is prints and advertising. So basically that, cause it, it costs a good $3 million to do a, um, to distribute a movie, just to distribute it physically, the physical copies of the PCA, even though it's digital, there's just this thing. So it costs, there's a bottom line of two to $3 million there, depending on number of theaters. And then, you know, promotion, which he's, now completely in control of which is not usual hmm. that's not the way things normally happen usually the studio marketing takes that over he instead he does he decides what the spend is going to be on tv on internet where it's going to happen you know you know geographically what the demographic targets are going to be and you know he's taken a risk and then but but the but the the great thing about it is that the day the movie comes out it's already in profit you know, because he's paid for that that PNA up front, and he has no other expenses. He doesn't have a budget. You know, he doesn't have to pay back himself. He's paid back himself. Like in the case of Logan Lucky, that was a more expensive budget. But he sit by selling the foreign rights and the streaming rights and all that stuff. He was able to pay back the budget and pay for the PNA, so that by the time the movie came out, all of that money was just profit. So are you, in a sense, an investor in this project? I mean, do you... I mean, in, in an intellectual property sense, you know, in a creative sense, yeah. I mean, you know, he gave, in, in lieu of paying us up front, Jonathan and I, um, he, um, he gave us a percentage of the profits. Um, you know, that's, just, that's not like... For, it's not like a Tom Cruise deal where you get a percentage of the first dollar at the box office regardless of whether the movie is in pro I mean, he has to pay back himself and all other expenses first, you know, for making the movie and for promoting the movie. But 
after that, everyone, you know, he did the same deal with the actors. You know, like everyone's got a percentage and it's like this really transparent process where apparently they're going to set up a website and we can go check and it will say what everyone has made and we can see what everyone, you know, else is getting paid and see that no one's getting paid more than they're supposed to or earlier than you or, you know, like there's, that's a very specific part of it. It's like he doesn't get paid before you do. You know, like Stephen doesn't get paid before you. He gets paid when you get paid, but he gets paid whatever his percentage is, you know, which I'm sure is as it should be bigger, bigger than our percentage. But, you know, actors will be able to see like it's completely transparent all the way down the line, which is just you know a different way of doing business. It's obviously completely different way of doing business. Well, yeah, by reputation, Hollywood is sort of a, a there is no back end, even if you're promised one sort of no. business model. So it'll be interesting to see how this how this turns out. So uh, what what's next for you? What's what's on your table? Uh, well, uh, as a musician, uh, novelist, screenwriter, all that stuff. Um, the band that I was in, De- Detective or DTCV, is on hiatus because I'm just too busy. Um, although um, the front person from the band, who was really the main songwriter and singer and all that, um, has a new band called Death Hags, which is, um, and and she's going to be doing a lot of touring and recording. So, um, but I probably won't be able to be involved in that. Um, and then on the uh, the novelist thing, I've been working on a novel for a while, but it's just like it has to take a back seat because um, you know how much money there is in novels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, especially in the kind of novels that I tend to write, which are anti, that's where I get out all my anti-narrative, you know, um, demons. Um, because, you know, I'm so story oriented in, in movies, in movies, I'm working on a bunch of stuff, but I can't say what, um, it may or may not be with, with, with Steven, um, going forward. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a, I'm very busy with, with the movie stuff and, um, that's probably my main focus for the next few years, at least. Again, all good problems to have. Uh, if listeners want to find you online, where can they find you? They can't. <laughs> I'm, I literally do not exist. I have a, I have a website. Um, I think I put it up or it just like, it's a joke. Cause I, I mean, I, it was a holding thing like James Greer. And it just literally says that, um, I am unreachable by phone or email and that you cannot find me, but if necessary, I will find you. <laughs> nice. nice. So, 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 cause I just, like, I, like I used to be on, you know, when I, when I, my last novel came out in 2010 or whatever, my publisher said, you have to go on Facebook and Twitter and all these places and promote it or, you know, cause otherwise we don't want to put it out. Fair enough, you know, and you have to start a blog and all this stuff. And I did it and I just hated it. I hated every minute of it. I, I, I know this is, a, I'm not a Luddite or anything. I just don't social, I'm, I, I have social media phobia or whatever you want to call it. I just, just can't do it. You're probably healthier for it, actually. It's it's a strange way to uh, to apportion your your brain bandwidth. So yeah, I I I got that when I was doing it, and I and I think I just didn't like that. Um, but I mean, you know, I mean, look, there's if you're in a band, you have to do it. You know, like so there are certain. I mean, I understand the necessity and the utility of uh, social networks, but it's just it's not. It's also not a medium that I'm good at. Like I'm not good at, at, at tweeting. I'm not, you know, I just don't like, I don't, my 
my thoughts or my jokes or whatever just don't work in, 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 in short bites like that. Yeah, I'm the same way, and I apologize to my Twitter followers for being an underachiever in that regard. I don't know if it's a generational thing or not. So, Maybe, but, which, but who cares? We are, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're, let the kids have it. Let the kids have their have their snap dance. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. I know what it's called. We, we can be the befuddled old men. So, exactly. Uh, James, James Greer, unfindable uh, writer and musician. It's been great talking to you. Great talking to you too, Rolf. Thank you very much. You bet. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Music is by my nephew Cedar Van Tassel and Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.